News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 14th. It's show number 49 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll be talking with Todd Zola about splitting a big jackpot seven ways, more about park factors, whether Kyle Schwarber is for real, those smoking Blue Jays, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Ryan Bloomfield sitting in for Harold Nichols, looking at roster shuffles in Chicago, a new closer in Colorado, and more. And from the American League, Alex Becky pinch hits for Jock Thompson and looks at Hisashi Iwakuma's no-no, Ben Revere's red light, and much more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Milwaukee's trade acquisitions, Domingo Santana and Brett Phillips. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield does double duty, looking at playing time decisions coming up fast in Pittsburgh. In our Frequent Flyers comment, Alex Becky also does double duty looking at Chris Bassett, Colin Ray and Travis Shaw. In our regular pitcher matchups analysis, Greg Fishwood looks at Detroit right-hander Justin Verlander in Houston against righty Colin McHugh, Arizona Southpaw Patrick Corbin at Atlanta to take on righty Mike Fultonevich and more weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy talks about getting some advice to help run a fantasy team. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The league race is getting hotter all the time. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Alex Becky is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report. And it's Ryan Bloomfield. Ryan, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. We're going to start in Chicago with the Cubs. You remember back in the 1980s, the Bears, the NFL team, released a kind of a rap video called the Super Bowl Shuffle. And the Cubs probably stand the same chance of winning the Super Bowl this year as the Bears. And uh, as of late, they've instituted a shuffle of their own. Tom Kephart covered the Cubs roster shuffle in playing time today. A lot of moving parts here. What's going on? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here, and, and first off, I don't know, the Cubs are so young, I don't know how many of these guys were alive when that video came out, um, but, but the real, you know, a couple of things triggered this entire shuffle in Chicago. Uh, the biggest thing is, has been Starlin Castro and his struggles at the plate this year. Um, Castro's just just had a, had a rough go of it. His batting average is a career low, 237. Um, never really takes any walks, so he doesn't get on base that much either. Um, the big thing for him, he's just not making any solid contact. Um, his hard hit numbers are down. He's only got five home runs. And curiously, um, Castro is not running and really hasn't been running the last couple of years. Uh, only four steals, only 17 steals over the last three seasons combined, uh, which is just odd given that, you know, in 2011-2012, he had, he had over 20 steals himself. So um, with defense not that great at shortstop, the Cubs you know, really couldn't afford to keep Castro in the lineup every day. Uh, so what's going to happen is they're going to move Addison Russell over to his natural spot at, se- at shortstop, um, over from second base. So Russell, 
really hasn't been that great himself this year. Obviously, he's just 21. Um, lots of time to get better, but he's a lot better than uh, than Castro with the glove, and he's been a little bit better in the second half. So um, Russell's going to go over to short, and Castro basically is going to the bench um, with maybe filling in part time at second base. Another th another triggering event here is been the success of Kyle Schwarber. Um, what a season for this guy. Really, he came up in, in June and just hasn't stopped hitting since. Um, unlike Castro, the Cubs, you know, can't afford to not have Schwarber's bat in the lineup. Schwarber you know, came up as a catcher, um, but has basically moved to left field. Um, Miguel Montero's been out for a while, and he's now back, and he's going to play uh, catcher for the Cubs. So to get uh, Schwarber's lineup, Schwarber's bat back in the lineup, um, he's going to go to left. Uh, Schwarber's got eight home runs. He's hitting 330 and just over 100 at bats this year. Um, amazing power from him. Our power metrics fully back that that home run rate. Um, 195 power index, 183 expected power index. Great numbers from him. Um, so Schwarber's going to stay in left. Um, he's going to take Chris Coglin's uh, spot in left field. Coglin's going to basically move from left back to second. So basically, half of the position players in Chicago will be playing new spots. Uh, Coglin's going to do well at second base. He's quietly having a pretty good year himself. Double-digit homers, double-digit steals. Uh, so I would expect a platoon at second uh, between Coglin and, and Starlin Castro. Coglin doesn't really hit left-handed pitching very well. So uh, so I think that's how it's all going to shake out. But yeah, a lot of moving pieces, especially for a, a team that's been as successful as the Cubs this year. I saw somebody wrote that the uh, Cubs ought to send their lineup out in one of those little cars where everybody comes piling out at the end and uh, runs around in circles for a while before they find their spot. Now, this Kyle Schwarber is an interesting ca case, I think, and I wonder if you share my concern about some of his stats. He's hitting three thirty, as you mentioned, in just 100 at-bats, but he has a 41% hit rate, and he's not a, uh, a fast guy. I mean, for him, a leg hit is uh, uh, an infield grounder. He hits off the pitcher's leg, and uh, and... His expected batting average only 275, and we're projecting 246 the rest of the way, which means there could be some rude surprises coming for anybody who wants to really throw their chips into the pot on Kyle Schwarber. How do you feel about his chances for the rest of the season? Yeah, I, I agree with that, Patrick. Um, I, I think the the power is definitely for real. I think he can keep up. You know, probably not this this uh, home run rate, but I think he'll be a uh, a great power source. But yeah, that batting average, I think, is going to come down. He's, he's His contact rate, which we always look at as a you know very large indicator of batting average, is just down to 70%, well below league average. And as you mentioned, that hit rate's way up, 41%. Um, you know, Schwarber is a rookie. Everyone establishes their own hit rate. But 41% is, is way above where we would, we would expect. So, um, yeah, he's not going to keep up 330. Um, you know, our projection of, of 246 may be a, a bit low, but yeah, that, that batting average is coming down. Uh, but the power, I think, is, is there and, and will be there. He hits plenty of fly balls, and, uh, and I think he's good there. But yeah, 
batting average will come down. And as batting average comes down, sometimes a lot of the other stats kind of creep down with it. Uh, you know, he's not on base quite as often. He can't score runs. He strikes out an awful lot. So that uh, 25 RBIs in 100 at-bats seems like it's a bit high of a, of a ratio as well. Now, uh, as far as uh, losing playing time, it looks like it's more of a shuffle than a loss of direct playing time for anybody except for Castro. Yeah, Castro is really the, the big loser here, and everyone else is just moving around and shuffling positions to to kind of make it work without Castro. Um, so, you know, Coglin may lose a little bit of time going from left field to second base, but... Uh, um, I don't, I don't really think it'll be that much time, so mostly just Castro. Ryan, two months ago we were all wondering if Jock Peterson of the Dodgers was a cinch rookie of the year, and some people were already arranging to have his uh, uh, sculptor carve a bust for Cooperstown, but the second half has been just terrible for him, an awful fade. Uh, covered by Greg Pyron and Facts and Flukes at BaseballHQ.com, what the heck is going on with Jock Peterson? Yeah, Peterson, that's, he's just been a different guy in the second half. Uh, 20 home runs in the first half two uh, so far through 114 at-bats in the second half. Um, yeah, I think part of it is a case of, you know, just growing pains. Remember, this guy's just 23. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, we were, you know, some people were anointing him into Cooperstown in his, in his first few months. Um, so it's going to take time. You know, Major League Baseball is a tough game. Uh, so I think pitchers are adjusting to Peterson. There's a couple other things going on here. Um, Peterson's power has just been sapped in the second half, though. Uh, basically, all of our power metrics look at a pretty sharp decline. Hard hit balls, uh, power index, expected power index was mammoth in the first half. That's right around league average now um, since July 1st. Uh, so the power has been down. Uh, but the big thing with Peterson, and, I, and a lot of people have mentioned this throughout, even when he was hot, is, is a low contact rate. We mentioned this with Schwarber at 70%. Peterson's been at 64% uh, this season. That is what I like to call in, in the danger zone uh, for any hitter. Um, if you're not putting the ball in play, especially as a rookie, you're, you're going to see some, uh, some longer slumps. If you have any kind of fade in your hit rate, uh, which Peterson has seen. His hit rate was 30% in the first half, and it's down to 24% uh, in the second half. Uh, that's just going to kill your batting average if you're not putting the ball in play. We've seen that uh, with, with guys like Ian Desmond's had a low contact rate. Chris Davis last year um, is a prime example. Someone who doesn't put the ball in play much is more prone to those slumps. So Peterson is going to have to work on that. Uh, Peterson draws plenty of walks, but he's got to put the ball in play more often. And like I said, he's 23. There's time. Um, but he's really feeling the effects of, of that in the second half. It's going to be interesting to see if L.A. keeps him in the lineup. Yeah, he strikes out about 33% of the time and, and consistently walks about 16% of the time. That's half his plate appearances right there, so he's not giving himself an awful lot of opportunities to do things with the bat, considering, the, of course, the walks are good, and we like to see a guy maintaining his command of the strike zone in that way, but at the same time, it's almost a, 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 an irony how seldom he hits the ball when he swings the bat, so he, he seems to be able to pick his pitch really well, but then when he gets his pitch, he's not doing anything with it, and that has to be cause for concern. If you were a, a betting man, how likely do you think it is that Peterson gets to turn things around in these last seven weeks or so? Anytime we're in the last seven weeks of the season, anything can happen. Um, 
I think he'll he'll be better than than what he's been so far in a second half. Um, I just worry LA's in a in the thick of a playoff race, and I don't know if we'll see everyday playing time from Peterson. Manager Don Don Mattingly has has publicly backed him, but Peterson um, was the leadoff man for most of the season. He's already been dropped down to sixth or seventh in the order, and LA has has plenty of bodies in the outfield that could. Um, could fill in. Obviously, Yasiel Puig's playing every day. Andre Ethier's having a great season, especially against right-handed uh, pitchers. Scott Van Slyke's available. Um, crushes left-handed pitching, and Peterson's lefty, so um, could be there. And there's always Carl Crawford. So LA has options. It's going to be interesting to see if they keep Peterson in there all the time. Stakes are high right now. We have Peterson projected for 80% of the remaining outfield time, which is about standard for a full-time outfielder. But there you see, as you said, lurking behind. you got Ethier, Van Slyke, and I think the wild card here is Carl Crawford, depending on his health. Uh, and don't forget, they picked up Jose Tabata. I don't think he really figures into things too much. But it, as you said, it's not like the Dodgers lack for options. Uh, over in Colorado, Ryan, they have a new closer. Not that this is going to be front-page news anywhere, but uh, Tommy Canely will get the ball in the ninth inning on those rare occasions when the Rockies have a lead. Rob Carroll covered this story for BaseballHQ.com in playing time today. So how excited should we be to burn fab dollars on Tommy Canely? Yeah, uh, Colorado closers. This is a a new name to to throw into the mix, but always a uh, test of patience for fantasy owners. Um, Tommy Canely, he's an interesting guy. Uh, I've seen a couple of his outings so far. Uh, doesn't really throw a breaking ball, a fastball changeup combo only. Um, has some real reasons to be high on him and then some real reasons to be low on him. He's got some dominant stuff, uh, striking out 11.4 strikeouts per nine, uh, missing plenty of bats at the major league level, and he's got a 96-mile-an-hour heater. Uh, surely helps with that. Um, he keeps the ball on the ground as well. Obviously, at Coors Field, that is a bonus. Um, the thing with Canely is he really doesn't know where the ball's going when he when he pitches. Um, he walks way too many guys. Got a 5.8 control or, or, or walks per nine innings. So that's a major red flag. If you're walking guys late in the game, uh, getting on base, you know bad things are going to happen. So in terms of Fab, um, you know, really just depends. He he does have the role, and there's a lot of value in that um, for closers. The role is everything. So if you need saves, and especially if you're bunched in that saves category, if you just need two or three saves to get you a couple points down the stretch, um, sure, take your Fab money and and put some on Canely. But I wouldn't expect a, a major breakout um, from him. The good news for him is there's really not. You know, the good news for Canely is there's not really many better options in Colorado's bullpen. So he could just pitch okay and, and keep the uh, keep the job the rest of the season. One thing to be concerned about, you mentioned that walk rate, is uh, it contributes also to a very high uh, whip ratio, uh, currently just around one and a half. And uh, that's been the uh, case for about the last month, whether he was closing or not. And uh, a one and a half whip from a reliever because of so few innings can really move your ratio unless you have you know, a thousand or 1200 innings, or it's not going to be that impactful, but boy, if you, if you're, you know, skating around the 900 inning mark and this guy puts up another 10 innings or so of 150 whip, that could, uh, if you're in a tight situation in that category could be really unhelpful. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, the risky run with these kind of speculative relievers is they can do more, more harm than good in that, in that 
you know, never-ending chase for saves. In New York, the surprising first-place battling Mets will be seeing some changes in infield playing time, not as extensive as the uh, Cubs, I don't think, but third baseman David Wright is going to be coming back from the disabled list. Greg Pyron got into this story in his Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the National League East. What are the roster implications for the Mets with the return of David Wright? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of ripples, actually. Um, The Mets have a lot of guys in that infield that are pretty flexible from a uh, defensive standpoint I, I you know obviously when Wright comes back he's going to be the main guy in the hot corner um, but Daniel Murphy is one guy who's going to be affected Murphy's basically been splitting time between third base and second base uh, so far this season and I think he'll move you know obviously full-time back to second base uh, Murphy's been an interesting guy himself he's been dealing with some leg injuries throughout this season I, I wrote him up on a in a fax flukes um, piece a couple weeks ago on the site and you know the the contact rate is there for Murphy um, excellent batting average expecting batting average but the counting stats haven't been there he's not running and I wonder if the um, if the leg injuries are affecting his his freedom on the base paths uh, Murphy's also struggled against lefties this season he's hitting 224 against them uh, without really any power to speak of a two percent walk rate against left-handed pitching granted small samples were 86 at bats um, against lefties this year but I, th- I think Murphy might platoon at second base probably with Wilmer Flores who kind of switches between second and short um, so Murphy will move to second I think the big playing time losers here will ironically be uh, the two guys that the Mets acquired in a trade from Atlanta earlier this year Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe um, Johnson less so um, Johnson's pretty flexible uh, he's played third base second first and outfield I don't think he'll get regular playing time at any of those spots with the Mets down the stretch but he will fill in at, at each of those and be able to pile up some at-bats that way. Juan Uribe is probably the biggest playing time loser. He has no possess- positional flexibility, and that's, I think, pretty obvious if you, if you see him play. Um, he'll fill in for David Wright you know, every now and then at third base. I don't think Wright's going to play every day right off the bat. Uh, but if you're if you're an owner who owns uh, Uribe or Kelly Johnson, start planning ahead now. And I, I, that's one of the things I really like about the playing time tomorrow columns on the site. We really look ahead at, at what changes might happen. Um, so so plan ahead. If you're relying on Uribe or Johnson in a deep league, um, start looking at your waiver wire, look at your fab, and see if you can replace those guys because they're going to lose playing time. Uh, down the stretch. I happened to be watching a Mets game the other day. Noah Syndergaard is on one of my rosters, so I watched him pitch, and Daniel Murphy was playing first base. Is that uh, likely to be a, any kind of regular occurrence, or was it just a, a an oddity? Yeah, no, that can happen. That's a great point. Um, and actually, Lucas Duda has had a sore back. He's actually missed a couple, the last couple of games. Um, so yeah, Murphy can play first. Uh, Kelly Johnson can play first as well. Um, both those guys are left-handed and struggle against lefties. The Mets in general are a little bit left-handed uh, centric, but but yeah, first base is a possibility too if, if Duda's injury becomes worse than some people think. Always have to be looking for paths to playing time for, for players who might be displaced in certain circumstances. And as you mentioned, David Wright himself is no lock to, to play every game the rest of the way either. I mean, he's he's been hurt a lot over the last few years, and uh, you know the, I'm sure they're going to be handling him with kid gloves they're looking forward to making the playoffs and they're going to need David Wright to make a playoff run. They're not going to they're go, they're going to have to be circumspect with how much they play him in the rest of this regular season. Uh, finally, Ryan the Marlins Christian Yelich drew the attention of two baseballhq.com analysts. Stephen Nickrand wrote about him in the Batters Buyers Guide 
and Greg Pyron covered him in the facts and flukes performance validation area. What's so darn interesting about Christian Yelich all of a sudden? Yeah, Yelich got a lot of love this week on the site. Um, I'll, I'll start off with Stephen Nickrand's piece, which was interesting in its own right. Um, Stephen looked at at, at uh, batting splits in high, medium, and, and quote-unquote low-leverage situations. And Yelich was one of those guys highlighted in that article as someone who has really thrived in what we call low-leverage spots. Um, he's hitting 314 with an 805 OPS um, in, in low-leverage, presumably you know nobody on base. Uh, but once you get to that to that high leverage um, position, Yelich has really struggled. 152 batting average, 419 OPS, zero walks uh, tells us that he's you know kind of flailing at the ball a little bit more, not being as patient in those high leverage spots. So again, it was an interesting column. Um, is that you know is is that a skill to be able to hit in, in lower high leverage situations? Is it the sign in Yelich's case of a young hitter just just not being composed enough yet? Um, or is it just, you know, complete, complete randomness? Um, in Yelich's case, if, if, those, if those splits even out, he's, he's going to be bound for better production in the second half or the rest of the way. And in Facts and Flukes, later in the week, um, as you mentioned, Greg Pyron looked at him. And Yelich is really, after a, after a bad start to the season, He's really gotten better uh, in the second half. His contact rate's gone up 10 points from the first half to the second half, and you can see that in his batting average. Uh, Yelich is hitting 250 in the first half and almost 320 now since July 1st. Um, the crazy thing about Yelich, he does not hit the ball in the air at all. He has a 15% fly ball rate. That's amazing, amazingly low. Uh, that's the lowest rate in all of baseball. So. I, I don't care if you're Giancarlo, uh, that's going to cap your home run potential hitting the ball in the air that, uh, that rare. So um, Yelich, you know, he's a good bet to, to keep up a decent batting average. Obviously, the, the, the 320 batting average in the second half is a little bit much, uh, but he's got speed. He's running more in the second half. So he's a solid bet, puts the ball in play enough to, uh, to make some batting average gains and then continue to rack up steals. I was going to say the... Uh, the- the fact that he hits the ball on the ground that often could be viewed as a positive if you think he lacks the power to reach the seats with any kind of regular uh, skill. And and I don't know what the case is with Christian Yelich. I've seen him hit home runs. He looks like he can hit the ball hard. But could it be that he's just trying to take advantage of his well above average foot speed to drive a, a higher batting average, a higher on base percentage, and help the team in that way? Uh, it's, a, it's a very curious situation whenever you see a guy who might have power but seems to prefer to not exercise it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that could very well be the case. Maybe he's just you know ditching the home run ball and and going for grounders and getting on base. Uh, obviously, your, your your chances of getting on base with a ground ball is much better than a fly ball, especially if you don't have that uh, that power. And Yelich really doesn't. He's got um, well below average power metrics according to uh, our power index, expected power index. So yeah, I I, I think maybe that is just a you know a, an intentional shift in approach. Uh, he just wants to get the ball on the ground, use his legs, get on base, and and steal base and go. And if that's the case, Ryan, then could that be affecting his ability to drive in runs, to have good performance levels with runners in scoring position in these so-called high leverage situations? That is, his natural bent is to, is to hit the ball on the ground, and, and uh, of course, that's what the pitcher wants usually with runners in scoring position. He wants to try to create a double play ball. He wants to try to get an infield out to prevent that runner, especially on third, from coming in. In all, it seems like uh, 
looking at a guy strictly from a high leverage situation might not be doing him a, a full service as to his actual ability. Yeah, I agree. He's, he, he's, he's got a low line drive rate, not driving the ball, and that, that can affect things with guys on base. And as you mentioned, you know, when you put the ball on the ground, uh, you're more susceptible to those, to those double plays, even if you're fast like Yelich. So, yeah, it's an interesting case. And, and, and like I said, that column was really good. So I, it'd, be, it'd be worth checking into that a little bit more and see what's going on there. It is an interesting column. Uh, Stephen was at pains to indicate that he wasn't talking about players in general. All of the players he looked at in the uh, comments that he wrote were young players who who might be affected more by pressure situations. Was his was his hypothesis? And then you look at these players. You're not looking at your you know your Miguel Cabreras and your Giancarlo Stanton and guys who've been around for years and and shouldn't be feeling this kind of pressure. But it's a possible growth point for a younger player, and maybe Christian Yelich. And, and the other people that are mentioned in the column, it's just a, a, a phase they have to grow through to not put pressure on themselves to drive in runs in that situation. Yeah, agreed. And, and that was a good angle to take. It wasn't just a kind of a random, you know, sampling of guys, um, all those young guys, as you mentioned. Now, if I was going to act on any of this information, I think I would also want to go and check what, the, what these hitters' uh, uh, record is with runners on versus without runners on that is are they face what is the difference between them facing pitchers from the full windup versus from the stretch because i've looked at this in the past and i know there are some hitters who just don't hit as well when they're facing a guy pitching from the stretch there's something about the the way that the timing works or something along those lines that they have a little more difficulty and in that way there may be a bit of a blurred line between runners in scoring position being the trigger or being the cause when actually the cause might be the fact that the pitcher's throwing from the stretch. Yep, absolutely. All right, Ryan, thanks very much for doing this. I know you'll be back a little later on in the show with your playing time segment. What's your topic? Again, I mentioned earlier the playing time tomorrow, and the playing time uh, section here on HQ Radio is more in that vein, looking at upcoming you know, playing time situations that, that could affect things down the stretch. This week we're looking at Pittsburgh. Uh, we've got Jordy Mercer and Josh Harrison on the, on the rebound. They're coming back to the lineup, so um, going to be potentially some ripples in, in Pittsburgh's lineup down the stretch. Sounds like it's going to be great to, to listen to. Thanks again for doing that, and thanks again for doing this, pinch hitting for uh, Harold Nichols on the National League Market Watch. Yeah, no problem, PD. Thanks a lot again, and uh, had a great time. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com. He's our playing time commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League, and pinch hitting for our regular commentator, Jock Thompson, is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Alex, welcome back to the show, and thanks again for pinch hitting. Thanks, Patrick. It's always an honor to be here. I love doing this. And we love having you. I guess the news of the week so far in the American League, well, a couple of things I'd like to talk about. But the first one, uh, a celebration in Seattle for Hisashi Iwakuma through a no-hitter this week. He sure did. Yeah, that was really impressive. But I tend to think it might be a little bit lucky, too. Just looking at his overall stats this year, um, I mean, he does have a 386 ERA, but there's nothing that indicates that this is going to be a common practice. I was looking at him too, and uh, his game log certainly doesn't inspire that kind of confidence. He's only gone past seven innings maybe two or three times. Uh, I will say this. He's been around the plate. One of his strengths as a fantasy pitcher is that he uh, keeps that walk rate way down under two. He's been doing that again this year, but uh, he's been allowing quite an increased number of hits this year over past years, and so from that point of view, it's a surprise. Now, the question is, is the fact that this guy throws a no-hitter 
something that we should be using as evidence that he's worth picking up, that he's somebody that we should be targeting, or is this so fluky that we should just dismiss it as such? You know, when I look at his job, it's pretty close to his historical rates, and um, he's at about 7, just above 7, 7.2. So I think that this is one of those things that uh, once in a season or maybe more likely a once in a career type of thing, but um, I wouldn't rush out to the waiver wires to get him. But by the same token, I think it does up his stock slightly. So in terms of trading him, uh, maybe there's somebody in your league that who would, if you have him on your team, maybe now is a good time to sell high. He had an ERA partway through the year in, uh, in the early part of July. It was over seven. Mind you, he'd been struggling with injury and so forth. And since that time, he's brought his ERA almost straight down from seven to 3.86 which indicates that there must have been a string of fairly useful performances. And, you know, on that strength, if you believe in momentum, I guess maybe there's a play here. But on the flip side of that, there's also this issue with hits. He seems to give up a lot of hits, notwithstanding that he has a no-hitter. But uh, a couple of weeks ago against the Twins, he went eight and two-thirds innings, only gave up three hits, then six against Texas uh, on August 7th, and then nine with no hits. Uh, of course, against Baltimore earlier this week. So, I don't know. It, it sounds like a possible momentum play, but it also looks like it could be a trap. I, I really am confused about how we ought to play this. Yeah, I, I lo- I'm looking at the same thing, and it, it is confusing that way because he has shown improvement. It is something where, as you said, he's coming off injury, So, and his whip is just barely over one. So there's certainly some underlying fundamentals that could suggest that this is a value play. But I'm just cautious with it because of his style of pitching, as you mentioned. I mean, he's not a high-velocity pitcher. He does give up a lot of hits. Um, So, you know, when you look at his XERA of um, 325, you know, that's that's decent. But it's one of those things that uh, um, I'm real cautious about. And when I, when I sum up his last start since mid-July till now, his ERA is only 293, and his whip is well under one. Uh, that's been driven by certain things like a relatively low hit rate and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm usually pretty straightforward about saying I like this guy or I don't like this guy, but in this situation, Alex, I'm going to say I don't know. You know, I, I'm going to have to agree with you. I think there's a lot of things that I do like about this guy. I'm just cautious in terms of I wouldn't run out and bet the farm to grab him. So, um, but I, I'm with you. I think there's a lot of things they're showing he may be a good buy low opportunity as well. Yeah, a lot's going to depend on what his current owner thinks of him as far as whether you're going to be able to gr- jump up and grab him on a, on a buy low basis. Of course, coming off a no hitter is a poor time to make a buy low offer, that's for sure. Uh, uh, Alex, uh, Toronto acquired Troy Tulowitzki quite notoriously right at the deadline. And uh, this week they gave him a day off. Uh, it was a day game after a night game, and they, they let him sit, and they started uh, Cliff Pennington, uh, another recent acquired uh, shortstop. And the reason apparently, at least in part, has to do with keeping Tulowitzki healthy because he has to play so many games on that terrible carpet at Rogers Center. A BaseballHQ.com analyst Dave Adler says Tulowitzki has the reputation of being the best shortstop in the National League, but only when he's healthy. And it seems like every time anybody talks about Troy Tulowitzki, that qualifier gets used, when he's healthy. Now, they traded away Brett Lowry partly because he couldn't stay healthy, and I guess we have to ask ourselves, how much risk does Troy Tulowitzki face because of that artificial turf in Toronto? 
Certainly that turf appears to be pretty dangerous for any player, especially one with an injury history as extensive as Troy Tulowitzki. But I remember that uh, you and Jack were talking about this on HQ Radio on this segment, as a matter of fact, uh, just a day or two after the trade was consummated with the Blue Jays. And one of the things that Jack pointed out was he wasn't sure how Tulowitzki's surgically repaired hip will hold up in Toronto on the turf. And it's been almost a year. He had surgery August 16th, to be exact, since uh, um, Tulowitzki repaired that torn labrum in his left hip. And not to mention he'll be 31 in October and hasn't played more than 140 games a season since 2011. So, sure, there's a reason for concern. But something that Jack said in that conversation a few weeks ago really stood out to me. And he said that if a trade were to be inevitable... Toronto's park and team, uh, to which Tula uh, is the best possible one that Tulowitzki's fantasy owners could have hoped for. At the time, I guess I didn't realize that. You know, so far, uh, uh, I didn't realize that so far more home runs have been hit at Rogers Center than at any other ballpark in this season, including Coors Field. In fact, when you look at the overall number of home runs hit, Per ballpark, uh, Coors Field ranks sixth behind Toronto, Milwaukee, Baltimore, Yankee Stadium, and Houston. Um, you know, I know that on BaseballHQ.com, we also have the ballpark tendencies, and Dave Adler did a great job of pointing this out, where uh, Coors is a plus 24% and Rogers Center is a plus 25%. So when you look at that, uh, you don't expect Tulowitzki's power to change much. But what I didn't realize is this may actually be a buy-low opportunity. Given the amount of protection Tulowitzki will have in the lineup, this may be an opportunity to acquire him. His counting stats, as Jack pointed out in that conversation, may actually go up. There is that possibility this year his slugging percentage at Coors was around 475 and in a short sample at Toronto's Rogers Centre it's about the same 480 or so so it's not like he's gone from the frying pan into the fire on in either direction it looks like a very consistent experience regardless of where he's playing as Jock said uh, of course uh, Toronto has played as a home run park although also you have to keep in mind that Toronto has a lot of guys who can hit home runs and that's certainly going to affect that particular uh, count as a straight count metric. Uh, I guess the question, Alex, for you is uh, when you look at Troy Tulowitzki, would you put an offer in on him, hoping to get him uh, talking up the injury risk and so forth, especially in a keeper league, given his age? You know, I think that's an excellent point, and I think a big part of that comes down to it depends. It depends on who the other team wants, obviously. But yes, I definitely think this is a potential buy-low opportunity. It wasn't until that conversation that you and Jack had that I really started Putting that in perspective, my initial reaction was always leaving Coors Field as power numbers might go down. But after listening to you and Jack, I think there's something to that, where if you delve in a little bit deeper to the stats, and I'm going to use Dave's qualifier with this, Tulowitzki, when healthy, may be an excellent buy-low opportunity. I would certainly put it an offer on him. And again, uh, like we were talking about Iwakuma, it might be hard to convince whoever owns Troy Tulowitzki that this is a sell sell opportunity because he has been playing pretty well in Toronto. Staying with the Blue Jays, they're in the top five in the American League in stolen bases. And at the time they acquired Ben Revere from uh, the National League, he was top five in the National League with 24 stolen bases. It looked like a stolen base bonanza was just waiting to happen, but so far at least Revere hasn't even tried to make a steal since the trade. What's going on here? 
Yeah, I was really surprised by that too because it seemed like a perfect offset with trading Jose Reyes and then a day later, later Toronto grabs Ben Revere. And believe it or not, Toronto as a team has been averaging almost 19 stolen base attempts per month for the first four months of the season, but has only tried to steal three times so far in August. Ben Revere has only batting 214 since joining Toronto, and that's part of it. He went hitless through his uh, first 14 at-bats with Toronto, so he may be pressing a little bit. But Revere is the only player in Major League Baseball with 20, more, 20 or more steals in each of the past five seasons, you know, 2011 to 2015, and he's already stolen 24 this year. Plus, when you look at his numbers last year, he stole 49. That's pretty good. Uh, on August 2nd, right after the trade that sent Revere to the Blue Jays, um, BaseballHQ.com reported in playing time today that manager John Gibbons and general manager Alex Anthopoulos uh, now agreed that the best Blue Jays lineup has Revere in it every day. And I think that speaks volumes. Uh, I think he's a, a great opportunity to grab him if he can. Uh, he is one of the hardest hitters to strike out in, ba- in Major League Baseball. He's only struck out 40 times this year in 434 plate appearances. He has a contra- uh, contact rate of 91%, which is among the best in baseball, according to Baseball HQ's benchmarks. So it looks like uh, um, it's just a question of Revere adjusting, back to, uh, adjusting to going back to the American League. I think he'll be fine. Well, now this raises an interesting question. So far, they seem to be pretty s- satisfied in Toronto to have Tulowitzki hitting at the top of the order with Revere hitting ninth. Uh, the other day when Tulowitzki sat, as I mentioned, Revere got to, to bat leadoff. But if they stick primarily with their lineup with Tulowitzki first, Donaldson second, Bautista third, and they put Revere in as kind of a second leadoff hitter in the nine hole, suppose he reaches as many times as he would ordinarily – could it be the case that Toronto has told him not to run because he, he's a very high percentage success rate, around 84% for his career, um, a little lower than that, but 83% this year? And could it be that they've said, look, we just want you to stand there and score when somebody hits a double or a home run and don't run us out of a big scoring inning because when you start with Tulowitzki and work your way all the way down to even Russell Martin in the fifth or sixth slot, depending on how they line guys up, uh, even Colabello's in there sometimes, there's a fairly decent chance that somebody's going to drive him in without him having to steal. And it could be like a, an Earl Weaver situation where you just wait and get that three-run homer. And I think there's a lot to that. And I think maybe as Toronto is becoming more competitive, especially after the price trade and uh, and where they're at in the standings, maybe they are tending to play a little bit more conservatively. But on the other hand, you look at you look at August. I mean, they only had the three attempt, stolen base attempts, but they've been winning at a pretty good clip. And uh, when you look at their wins, I mean, they've been scoring nine runs a game or something against a lot of teams. And uh, at that point, it really doesn't make as much sense to steal. So it may be a function of them actually improving their overall batting and their overall other statistics on a team level that makes them more competitive. And less likely to steal, which would mitigate against Ben Revere. Uh, I think there's something to this. You mentioned they have only three stolen bases in August. They've won 10 games in a row or 11 games in a row while only trying three stolen bases. They may be looking around and going, 
we don't need to steal bases. We'll just play it station to station. We'll get Ben Revere on, and if uh, somebody doubles, his speed comes in handy because he can score from first on a double, uh, score from second on a short single, and so forth. We don't need to have anybody stealing bases on this team, and I think that's a concern for anybody who picked up Ben Revere hoping to get some stolen bases. Uh, Up in your neck of the woods, Alex, the Twins activated outfielder Byron Buxton, which was welcome to those of us who had him, and then surprised a lot of us by immediately sending him back to AAA. Now, uh, is there truly no room at the inn for Buxton, as the uh, Baseball HQ analysis said in playing time today? Yeah, I really like that analogy by Mike Shears in in playing time today where he said there's no room at the end. Um, Buxton was only batting 189 through 11 games at the big league level so far, but there's a good chance that he'll be called up in September. And I think one of the things that seems to be driving this is very similar to the Chris Bryant situation in Chicago where there's a, obviously a concern about Super 2 arbitration and starting that clock. Um, I think the, the the rookie cutoff is about 50 games, so uh, since he's only played 11, there's a very good chance he'll get called up in September. But don't be surprised if the Twins monitor this closely, and they may keep him in AAA until uh, the end of the year. Um, obviously, adding an extra year of eligibility makes a big difference for a small market team like the Twins. We tend to think of those playing time considerations happening in April and May when they delay bringing a guy up to buy themselves an extra year before arbitration and free agency. But, of course, it's a, it's a game count situation, and the games that they're counting can happen in September just as easily as they can in April and May. Uh, when we're talking about Buxton, we also have to talk about Aaron Hicks because he was a kind of a top prospect. Then he was kind of a bust, and people were starting to think that maybe he was, he was finished. But BaseballHQ.com's Matt Gelfand in a recent Facts and Flukes column wrote about Hicks and said he's really an, now an intriguing growth stock. What's your take on uh, on Aaron Hicks? You know, whenever I hear intriguing growth stock, I always think buy and hold. And I think that may be a very accurate description. I think that one of the biggest factors, obviously, is the person that we were talking about, Byron Buxton. But, you know, it... You have to remember, Hicks has the best batting average on the Minnesota Twins since the All-Star break. He's batting three twenty-six, and he's creating uh, over five runs a game this season. You know, he's, he, he's only 25, and he was a first-round pick by the Twins in 2013. I think what most people forget is that he was rushed to the big leagues after the Twins traded both Ben Revere and Denard Spann to improve their rotation. And he skipped AAA entirely that year and then struggled at the major league level, batting under 200. He's batting 192 in 81 games. So he played a half season, but he really struggled through that process. You know, I think the reason that Hicks and Buxton are often mentioned in the same sentence and compared is because I think the Twins don't want to rush Byron Buxton because they've seen what's happened with Aaron Hicks and that experience is fresh in everyone's mind. But you look at the pedigree of the Twins in terms of developing center fielders. I mean, you go back to Kirby Puckett, Torrey Hunter, Carlos Gomez. They really do have a lot of experience in developing high-quality center fielders, and I think Aaron Hicks may very well be one of those. And I think going forward, he's somebody that you want to look at, especially in keeper leagues. He's batting three sixty-eight against left-handed pitching this year. He's just crushing it. And even though he's batting two fifty five against right-handers, he's back to switch hitting this year. I know the Twins put a little bit of pressure on him to only bat left-handed last season at the major league level when he was struggling, but 
you know, he's worked extensively with Paul Molitor and the Miners, and I think having Paul Molitor as a manager this year is a big part of why Aaron Hicks is having success. Not to mention his, his mentor, uh, from what I hear, Tory Hunter has a locker right next to him and is helping him through the process. So I think Aaron Hicks may be an excellent long-term buy. He, he's definitely an intriguing growth stock. I was going to say when I hear intriguing growth stock, I always think of Enron, but that's just that's just my own uh, investing experience. I think coming to the fore now. Uh, suppose that we're right about the idea that they're going to hold Buxton back till he passes that playing time deadline, and then they bring him up maybe later on in in September or or not at all. But certainly he has a place in the in the Minnesota Twins' future. When he arrives, who plays center field between him and Hicks? That's a very good question because they're both incredible defensively. And I think Buxton has a little bit more speed. I'm not sure on that, but that's just the eye test. And so I think in terms of closing speed on fly balls and so forth, Buxton may slightly be a better fit. On the other hand, I mean, the Twins also have Arcia waiting in the minors, you know, and he plays right field. And of course, Torrey Hunter is in that position this year in his last season. So. The Twins outfield looks pretty stacked going forward. There, That could be a fantasy bonanza going into 2016. Well, R.C. is going to have to make more contact, I think, but uh, he certainly has the power. The, the Twins actually look like sort of under the radar. This year they've played better than everybody expected, but they look like they're shaping up to have some kind of powerhouse, especially as they get rid of some expiring contracts. They are definitely going to need to shore up that pitching staff because it's pretty bad. Oh, the pitching staff really, really struggles. I'd like to see them get away from the uh, pitch-to-contact model and really start getting some fireballs in there. I know they've made an effort with that with Alex Meyer and Trevor May and Berrios is coming up. They have a lot of young pitching that's coming up. But if they can get away from that model of uh, pitching-to-contact, allowing the defense to make plays, I think they're going to greatly improve their fortunes in this league. I'd love to see him strike people out. Of course, strikeout pitchers cost money, and that's not something that Twins often have in uh, great supply. Uh, moving on, uh, since the All-Star break, Didi Gregorius of New York is 28 for 78, which is closing in on a 360 batting average and has got him pretty much a full-time starting role in uh, since the All-Star break took place. Now, Matt Dodge covered Didi Gregorius in playing time today earlier this week. Should we be believers in Didi? You know, it's a pretty empty batting average. He's got 24 singles, two doubles, a triple, and a home run. Attained with pretty good contact. He's got an 86% contact rate and a 29% line drive rate, but he's got a, a very poor eye. He's, it's at a, a .27, so there, uh, there's no steals or no attempts either. So there's n- not speed there in terms of uh, grabbing him or adding value to your team. But he's certainly turned around that batting average category and now is a positive contributor for the whole season. So he, I mean, you know, it, it's one of those questions. He could he could have fewer days off going forward. The uh, eye ratio, I don't think really has anything to do with his batting average. But what I do notice is that his batting average on balls in play is still under 300 for the year, although it's been better over the last little while. Um, could this just be fluctuation that rand, uh, of a random sort that we would expect from any player during any season? Sometimes they fall in for hits. Sometimes they fall into guys' gloves. I think it could be. I, I think it's. Uh, I think it's one of those things where uh, you know, obviously, there's some luck involved with this, but 
Um, I think it is one of those things where sometimes they do fall in for hits and sometimes they do fall in for in the gloves. Also, the Yankees, for reasons surpassing all understanding, are carrying two no-hit middle infielders. And as a pure platoon play at second base, is there any chance that Stephen Drew or Brendan Ryan can provide fantasy value? Well, maybe if you play in one of those backwards leagues where you get penalized for offensive success, but otherwise, no. (laughs) All right, Alex, thanks a million for helping us out. We do appreciate it. And uh, you have a frequent Flyers comment coming up a little later in the show. Who are you talking about? Chris Bassett. Colin Ray and Travis Shaw. Very excited about those three. All right, something else to look forward to, and thanks so much for pinch hitting for Jock, and we'll uh, talk with you again during the season, and maybe we'll have a roundtable at the end. That would be fantastic. Looking forward to it. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our frequent Flyers commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it'll be our regular weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you, so we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Aug Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'd like to tell you about BaseballHQ.com and the reason we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our playing time roster updates look at Nationals third baseman Ryan Zimmerman, Cardinals right-hander Carlos Martinez, Minnesota outfielder Aaron Hicks, and many other players. Our Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage looks at Dodgers closer Kenley Jansen, Miami outfielder Christian Yelich, and many more. And our bullpens columnist Doug Dennis looks at relievers to sell if you're selling relievers. We also provide daily matchups reports and a daily fantasy dashboard. There's team coverage and minor league scouting. And of course, we have all our projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure once again to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN Fantasy Sports, Masters Ball, and Fantasy Alarm. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be back, Patrick. I understand you had some uh, interesting news. A friend of yours was in a 94,000 people tournament uh, on a daily fantasy game, uh, put in three bucks, win a hundred grand, and he won, but then it turned out he had to share the prize. Yeah, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago on, on on one of our Tout Wars roundtables how DFS for me it's more than it's a social event, and 
I like to talk to people about setting my lineups and running ideas by them. And, and then hopefully at night when I'm in competition for a championship, you know, they're, they're sweating along with me, but more often than not, it's the reverse. And that's the way it was early in the week where a buddy of mine, uh, like you said, he, 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 three dollar entry into the one of the sites and you win a hundred thousand, but he had to chop it because the seven teams had the exact same lineup. So it's one of those things, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I won $18,000, but you know, I, I almost won a hundred thousand. So it's, it's, uh, haven't had that feeling, haven't had that one, but, uh, you know, he, he took it well and, uh, you know, he's not talking about how much he didn't win. He's just happy that he won and, you know, grinded out some uh, some money after we've both been a little bit of a slump. So uh, at least one of us is out of it. I'm not surprised with 94,000 entrants that there were six or seven teams at the top, of, especially, that had exactly the same team. It just seems with that many players, it's inevitable. Yeah, and I, this was a night where it was a short-slated night. There were some day games. So the pitching... I don't want to say it was obvious, but you're funneled more towards a couple of pitchers. And the amount of teams to stack, there were two or three teams. If you just happen to hit on the right pitcher in the right stack, it, it, it does happen a lot. And it put, goes into the game theory between trying to be successful and earn your build your bankroll and, and cash games versus tournament play where you have to be contrarian. And it's uh, to be honest, it's one reason why I'm not very good at these tournaments because I'm not wired to pick a player that I think isn't going to perform as well as another, but his usage rate will be low, so therefore he's a better choice for me uh, for a tournament. I'm more wired towards the cash games, which is why I'll, I'll when I'm in the groove, I will generally play mostly cash games and occasionally, you know, throw a throw a Hail Mary into these tournaments. Of course, it's you know, the tournaments that everybody wants to win to get rich quick and retire. But to me, the, the skill and, and, and the things I know about baseball, I can apply better to the cash games than I can uh, to the to the tournaments. And it, it's just the way, you know, I have to sort of accept that as part of it and live vicariously through. I, I, I One of the websites I work for has had an incredible run, uh, Fantasy Alarm, as far as uh, going to live finals and and winning tournaments and, and and things like that. So I pretty much have to live vicariously through them and and be happy for them and not you know wallow in my own self pity. You know, be happy that I took down my fifty fifty that night and you know give them a, a you know huzzahs for uh, for doing well in the tournaments. You know, it strikes me that this is kind of a, a version of that birthday problem that if you ever took any probability courses in high school or college, where they ask you the question, how many people do you need in a room before you, you can be reasonably certain that two of them have the same birthday? And the answer is a lot smaller than you think. Of course, 366 is a guarantee because that's how many days there are in a leap year. But you can get to uh, apparently a right close to 100% probability, even if there are only just 70 people and 50% probability with 23 people. Now, of course, when you're talking about a daily fantasy baseball lineup, it's more complex because there, it's not just a single variable, the birthday, it's eight variables plus the pitching variable. So it's going to be more than that, but I bet it's way fewer than we think. Right. And these, when you, when you start playing tournaments and you can start to see usage patterns, it absolutely is. And you can almost, that's when you start to predict what the usage of a player will be and should I use them, should I not use them. And I do that to a certain extent in our tout daily, depending upon if I'm in early in the, in the phase where I need to take it safe or right now, 
I had a good first week. I had a lousy second week. I need to sort of go for it this week to get myself back into to contention. And so I'll be picking a pitcher that I don't think is going to have the best night, but he's not going to be owned by a lot of people. And I am going to look for something I can hang my hat on. It, it's not going to be a total dart throw, but you know, it, it just it goes against my DNA to 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 choose somebody that I don't think is going to be the best. You know, I, I'm choosing him because he is not owned by a lot of other people. It's just it's part of the uh, I don't want to say it's like bluffing in poker, but it, you know, because that it's a complete you know, it's completely different than bluffing in poker. But it just for someone who's as, as, as wired that I as I am, you know, I I really do like DFS and some of the nuances involved with how to get an edge, but you seem to be throwing that away sometimes uh, in these in these tournament situations. In my master notes comment uh, here at Baseball HQ Radio and on the site as a printed article last week, I talked about certain situations I don't want to start pitchers in, whether it's for daily purposes or for a season long for streaming purposes. And that had to do with the idea that I don't want certain, I, I do want to start against certain teams because they're terrible uh, as, as a general hitting profile at home or on the road and I do want to start my pitchers uh, against those teams but I don't want to start them especially against Toronto anywhere because Toronto just hits the hell out of the ball and we'll talk more about Toronto in a second but uh, this brings us around to this whole idea of park factors where one of the things we always look at when we're choosing our pitchers is where are they pitching is it a pitcher's park and I know at Fantasy Alarm you've been really digging into park factors and you've just uh, published a new article on the topic. Uh, give us the general overview of what you found. Well, I've done a couple. Uh, last week I did a piece and I just I looked at, I'm focusing on runs because we don't have to break that into its headedness, at least at the beginning, and just basically looking to see the, the consistency of park factors and in season if a factor is significantly different than what we expect is that real is that actionable can we now readjust our thinking both hitters and pitchers or is it just noise and is it just going to go back to back to normal regress back to how the park normally plays and if someone does make that leap of faith that it's real maybe you gain an advantage over them and uh, unfortunately, like I said I'm wired as a scientist, and I wanted to have you know one size fits all algorithm that answers the question. And unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. And it's almost going to have to be where the, you're going to have to design a narrative for each park. You can look at some trends, but you're going to there's some parks that are just wackily variant from year to year, and then there's other parks that are just you know you can I call them tables that you can if the if the scores were a leg of a table you'd put the table on there and a, put a ball on the table and the ball wouldn't roll because they're so consistent and then you start to look for reasons maybe weather maybe all good weather parks uh have have less variance but no you you'll see that that one good weather park is is, is highly variant and another is not so it, I'm just trying to find trends uh, between them, but just looking at the data in general, and we've talked about this a little bit before, and I've written about it on HQ. And I did, there are some parks that just are perceived to be pitchers' parks or hitters' parks uh, that aren't. Um, and the other thing too is, is one year to the next, the very the the parks that have so much variance, uh, they change. So we may go into the year thinking it's one way or another, and 
it actually the following year it played differently. So that's some of the uh, some of the other things that I can we get from this data. The more consistent parks, when I do my park effect at the beginning of the year, that player, his the range of his statistics based on the park is is, is fairly small. But there's some players, you know, Fenway Park is one where it goes up and down and up and down. Uh, we already know projections or ranges. Well, we, I don't, you know, we, we just think it's just normal performance range. We don't think that the park could, could be contributing to that range as well. And it's, it, and it's not so much the park as it is the, the opponents and the, and the pitchers and, and, and the whatnot. So it's just another, I think we can think of certain players and certain teams that you just have to have a little bit more of an asterisk next to their, uh, name that their performance might be even a little bit more variable. I'm being very vague because this is going to be an off-season project. Uh, there's just so much data to crunch <laughs> that uh, I will have much more uh, specific. You know, these these parks, uh, the, the players are trustworthy. These parks, the players have a lot more variance. And it can those might be the guys you want in a high-stakes league, the one with the more variable. And maybe if you just want to win your home league, uh, or maybe make an early round draft pick for safety. Maybe you take a player in one of the more stable parks. Well, you mentioned that there's uh, variance both season to season, and I imagine uh, as well there's going to be variance within seasons. We've heard all about, for instance, Wrigley Field plays as a pitcher's park early and a hitter's park late, and na- narratives like that. But let's start with the year-to-year. Which were some of the parks that had the biggest variances changes? Oh, you did it over six years, I believe? Yeah, well, what I, I I did a couple different studies, and well, one of them I, I to to do six years, I've looked at five years of single uh, of just that year in order to get um, three year averages, which is a different part of the study, because once you add the three year averages in, the variance change uh, the variance shrinks obviously because uh, when you when you take the standard deviation of the three year average, it reduces it, and which is why one of the reasons why we use three-year averages to begin with but just on a, on a year-to-year basis uh parks that have the huge deviation uh let's see going by division baltimore is pretty big boston's pretty big actually everybody in the al toronto's the, toronto's the smallest in the al east it's got and that sort of makes sense because of the roof and when the roof is opened the weather is pretty decent but the other parks have all got pretty big swings uh, as far as um, seasonal, and even more so, uh, Fenway Park in particular has got drastic first half and second half swings, and they're not even consistent. One year it plays uh, more of a pitcher's park over the first half, and then a, more of a hitter's park, and then it'll flip. So Fenway is just all over the place. Uh, Cleveland is one of the more stable parks in the uh, in the uh, in the league, which. You know, weather, Lake Erie, you would think maybe otherwise, cold in the spring and then warming up. The White Sox, on the other hand, is, is one of the bigger ones uh, as far as uh, devi- deviations go. Um, the other thing that I am looking at, and, and there is, does seem to be something to this, is uh, pitchers' parks tend to be more stable than hitters' parks. Uh, hitters' parks tend to have much more fluctuation, which I think is something that is intuitively I think you can intuitively say that, uh, and that is something to me uh, that I think we can. For instance, you mentioned Petco Park. Um, 
I'm not sure if you maybe I just have Petco Park on my mind. I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but one of the narratives early in the year was it's now suddenly a hitter's park, and we I don't remember the pitcher's name, but he was talking about in batting practice how balls are just flying out of Petco Park, and they have that new left field scoreboard, and there's some downtown downtown construction, and the narrative was the winds have all changed, and Petco Park is now going to be a hitter's park. Now I looked at the numbers, and it's one of the one of the least variant parks there is. So if I'm asked that question in May, my answer is, you know what, I, I hear what the pitcher's saying and, and the scoreboard's there, but man, that park has just been so consistent. My guess is it was just a, a couple weeks where a couple hitters, Upton and Kemp, got really hot at home, skewing the numbers for a couple months, and it'll regress. Now, it's easy to say, you know, I, mean, I ended up being right, but, you know, <laughs> that's what I would have said, and that's what's happened. And it, it, cause it's just been so consistent. It's played for the first two months, Petco played at a, a 95, a 105. For the last two months, it's played at an 85. And for the year, it's at 95. And I'll be willing to bet over the next six or eight weeks, it, then that 95 brings itself down closer to 90 or 89. And its average is 84, 85. So it's just, uh, you know, a, a blip. So back in April and May, where people are saying, oh no, Petco's now a hitter's park. I, I, didn't think it was and don't think it is and turns out it's not and when you say 100 or 95 or 85 i presume that means 100 would be league average for runs and then 95 would be five percent below that and so on yeah exactly sometimes i yeah i assume too much yes exactly and i'm talking specifically about runs i am going to repeat the studies down the line using home runs because you know, it, from a from a projection standpoint, we care about everything. But from a, am I going to play this player in my league standpoint? You know, in hitters, we want home runs, and pitchers, we want to prevent runs. So to me, the only things I really care about, as far as either DFS or if it's a daily league, I want to know if my player has a good chance to hit a couple home runs over the weekend, or if my pitcher has a good chance of you know keeping the runs down and not hurting my ratios for that particular game. So I focus on just runs and home runs, at least for this. But yeah, uh, San Diego, it appears to be, when, when you say 84, yeah, that means that it's depressing runs. And as we've talked about, too, some of these parks may have a positive home run factor, but have a negative, and I don't want to say negative, but a reduced runs. City Field is, is a huge example of that, and where it's a home run park, but it's still a pitcher's park. It just has to do with how many strikeouts and the foul territory and some of the other things. Uh, you know, Fenway Park depresses runs. Uh, sorry, depresses home runs. But because of the left field wall turning so many fly balls into doubles, it actually is positive for runs. So uh, it's sort of an interesting. There's not runs and home runs don't necessarily correlate as far as an individual park. Now, a lot of the uh, park effects that we see at some websites try to normalize for the lineups and so forth, because uh, as soon as you said the Mets give up a lot of home runs, not so many runs, I'm thinking to myself, that's because Matt Harvey, Syndergaard, uh, Mats, and, and all of these terrific pitchers, DeGrom, are maybe giving up a home run here and there, but it tends to be a solo shot, and, and as a result, maybe that's got something to do with it. And conversely, maybe the, the, the stability of Rogers Center in Toronto uh, in in run production stems from the fact that they've got a really strong lineup and it and it really helps. So, did you normalize out the batting and pitching lineups, uh, or is that part of the park effect as far as you're concerned? The only, yeah, the way to calculate a park effect 
is to in- include both the hitters and pitchers from the same team. So in theory, it's supposed to that's supposed to flesh itself out. It's, to me, it's one of the biases that doesn't completely flesh itself out. But in the equation itself, at least on paper, that's what's supposed to you know if if, if Encarnacion and 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 Bautista and Donaldson and now Tulowitzki, you know, hit hit home runs. They're going to hit home runs on the road too. So how many more home runs do they hit at home versus on the road? And their pitchers are going to give up home runs. So how many more home runs do they give up at home versus the road? And they basically you add up the amount of home runs the team hits, you add up the amount of home runs or runs allowed that the pitchers give up, and you div- at home both of those at home, and you divide that by the amount of home runs a team hits uh, away plus the amount of home runs the pitchers give up away, and you have to normalize for the amount of games because depending upon when you do the factor, the games aren't exactly equal. Or some home runs you use at bats, you don't use you don't use games. So you, it's the number of chances. So normalizing it in that fashion, and it's supposed to flesh it out, but I don't know that it does. And then. What if you have a team that its hitters are just, I don't want to say designed for the park, because I don't know if you do that, but it could be fortuitous that a certain set of hitters, well, I think the biggest example would be Barry Bonds, the way he was able to hit the ball out of, out of AT&T and nobody else was, and it may have skewed that park factor just a little bit. If you have a team that just is just strong at hitting where the park has a shorter fence or whatever, it could skew things that way a little bit. And and I think it also, as far as pitchers go, I think if you have fly ball or ground ball pitchers, a, it's, I think it's going to matter. Where, do they pitch at home? Do they pitch away? Is it the same proportion home and away? The, all these things are supposed to equal out. I don't know if they do, which is why you do the three-year average, because over three years they're supposed to equal out. But... Um, like one of the things I found is, you know, you go into the year thinking a park's going to play 105. It never plays 105. It plays either 110 or it plays 95. And I went into the year doing my projections at 105, and it turns out this year it was 95 um, because you know with the three year this fluctuation around the three year average. So it's just one of those. And I, I've said this before. It's it's better to use them than not to use them, but they're not the you know the golden, uh, the, the 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 you know the 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 elixir that that some people think they are. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt talking with Todd. It's Todd Zola from ESPN and Fantasy Alarm and Masters Ball and. And Todd, uh, we were talking earlier about the difference between narrative and statistically supported assertion in regard to park effect. And I have another question I'd like to ask you along that same line. Earlier in the show, I was talking with Ryan Bloomfield about Kyle Schwarber. He had uh, two home runs again the other night uh, on Thursday. He's got eight for the season and barely 100 at-bats and is the toast of uh, the town in Chicago. But there are all kinds of warning signs about this. And, and when you Talk about Schwarber taking over in left field. He, he seems to have this narrative on his side. Everybody wants to get on this bandwagon. He's the hottest hitter in baseball, blah, blah, blah. He's striking out a third of the time. And those two things seem to be in direct opposition to each other. And so my question is, when we see a situation like this where a guy seems to be not statistically, but narratively, on top of his game, couldn't be doing better and so forth, while there are underlying reasons not to believe in it, how do you manage those expectations? Yeah, I think it's... it's. I'm having some Twitter fights with people because I've been... 
uh, less enthusiastic about Carlos Correa as some of my counterparts have been. So I'm being called out for how low I may have had him ranked when he first came up. And I don't know that Schwarber's not an exact analogy because the difference being Schwarber's always hit for power. He's always hit for average. And Korea, the, the power sort of came out of nowhere. Um, so, you know, you're right. You look at it and you see the the strikeout rate, but you also see a decent walk rate. So you sort of have to ask yourself, all right, well, we're say he's going to strike out a lot. Is there something else in his profile that will help mitigate the fact that he's going to strike out a lot? And it is a small sample, and it is a fairly new measurement. We've talked about it a couple times, but the the, the bat speed, the, the 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 ball speed off his bat is just huge, as it is for Miguel Sano. And this is a good predictor of base hits. And we know that his BABIP's coming down. There's no way he's going to keep a 420 or 400 BABIP, whatever whatever it is at this point. Uh, it's coming down. But people are going to just have it crashing, and I don't think it's going to crash. So I think Schwarber's going to keep hitting. And it's it's coming, you know, he's not going to keep hitting at this level, but we're not predicting the doom and gloom that some people like to predict on high BABIPs just because they, you know, they want to, they want to be right. They want to show that the BABIPs coming down and they'll go too much to the other end. Uh, is a guy that, especially because he's going to qualify a catcher and now be playing mostly left field, is a guy that, man, if you, if you have him, great. I don't know if it's possible to get him anymore, but, um, I know there's one league that I play and it's, it's a head to head, head to head.com league where he's available in my league and I'm pretty much going to go all in to get him. Uh, down the stretch and, uh, and, and, and hope boost my, boost my chances because I think it's real. Whereas, you know, I was hesitant on Korea. I don't want to say I'm all in on Schwarber, but I'm not as worried about that contact rate because he shows some stuff in his bad at ball profile that's going to help keep that average up when he is striking out. But when you say up, well, I mean, you don't expect he's going to keep hitting. I think he's around 310 right now, and his expected batting average, according to Baseball HQ, is around 270 or 275. Where would you set your expectation for Kyle Schwarber in batting average? Well, right now he's at 330. Uh, after after the game, after the after the double dong game that he had last night, he's up to 330. I um. There's such a small amount of the season left as far as what. I think he could probably hit 280 to 300 the rest of the way. So I, my expected batting average might be uh, a little bit higher than what HQ might might have going right now. And sometimes we match up, sometimes we don't. And I, this is more right now just off the top of my head, eyeballing it and not running it through my own little system, which I I will have a chance to do uh, soon for, for him. Um, I, th- I did it. At one point, but I didn't. I want to put more data in <laughs> to get a to get. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, when he when he was going to be a backup catcher, I didn't go the next step to try to figure out. Uh, but now that he's going to start, it's more important that we uh, that we have a, a we, we fine tune him a little bit more down the stretch. I mean, he's hit everywhere he's been. He is still young, and I said I impre- I'm impressed by the by the pro the batted ball profile more than anything else. And I, uh, I we, we talked about it a little bit. Offline, I like the fact that he's going to be playing mostly left field and not catching. I think that's going to help his development, at least in this year as a hitter. Uh, I mean, Chicago, they are, they're battling for a playoff spot. 
and I think it's good that they're going to rely on Montero and, and Ross to handle that staff and not worry about a rookie handling the staff and just letting him go out there and, and hope he doesn't drop too many balls in left field. And even if he does, it's usually not the end of the world compared to pass balls and uh, and not being able to throw base runners and stuff. And all just thinking about managing the pitcher in that day when you're a rookie and it's the pennant race and all of these things, I think you're right that moving out to left field, while it's a narrative thing, it's not a statistical thing, but it, it does seem to support the idea that maybe he'll be a little more relaxed playing the rest of the game, which for him is hitting. And I should say about the uh, Baseball HQ expected batting average metric, it's built out of component parts, and it it rests very heavily on contact rate, first of all. And of course, anybody who's striking out a third of the time is going to suffer in an algorithm that rests very heavily on contact rate. But on the other side, for for Kyle Schwarber, there's also a, a, a hard contact index component. His hard contact this year is 132, which is 32% better than league average. And his uh, power index is off the charts. That's based on linear weighted power, an old thing. It just seems like, except for striking out, this guy has every skill you want in a hitter. Right. And nowadays, with the increased number of strikeouts, you know what? A 25%... Uh, strikeout rate isn't the end of the world anymore. It's it's not good, but it's not a filter that you immediately toss the guy out and say I don't I don't I mean, you know, he's Chris Davis is a sort of different type of player. We don't expect him to hit for the high for high as an average. But if strikeouts are go if pitchers if pitchers are striking more batters out, we do have to sort of readjust our baseline of acceptance when it comes to batters and we're with the line that we use in our heads to say you know i don't want this guy and i do want this guy so i we have to sort of make that adjustment along with it uh but um at the end of the day i am i am buying you know i'm not the only one it's just <laughs> i'm buying schwarber at the end of the, at the end of the day and i think i prospects are, are, are interesting because i think people sort of go towards more of a narrative than to do the numbers. And the narrative is they, they love this kid, so therefore they're on him. And that's, I think, what people are doing with Correa. But, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I go with what my numbers say. And the numbers say, go after Kyle Schwarber. And sometimes, of course, the uh, narrative is all you have because uh, in the case of a guy like Schwarber or Correa, all you have is a very limited amount of minor league at-bats. The minor league conversions are getting better, but they're certainly not uh, as predictively valuable as as major league at-bats are. And and so sometimes the narrative is all you have. Uh, Speaking of narratives, Todd, uh, finally the Toronto Blue Jays, we talked about them earlier, Rogers Center seems to be a launching pad for the Blue Jays at least. And the narrative there is they've won 11 in a row, they won 10 in a row earlier. They've stormed back from behind the Yankees to take over first place in the American League East, and there seems to be no stopping them. How much do we let that narrative affect our fantasy decisions for seasonal play and especially for daily play? Do you, do you mini-stack Toronto every night of the week for the rest of the year? Yeah, that's part of what we are uh, talking before at the beginning about uh, taking down a tournament in that my paper, my notes might say the top hitters on a particular evening are Donaldson and Tulowitzki and and and, and uh, Bautista, but yours notes are going to say the same thing, and everybody's notes are going to say the same thing. So, one of the ideas of game theory and taking down a tournament is going against that and not using in in DFS terms, it's called fading. You fade the uh, the Blue Jays that particular night and hope they struggle and hope that the secondary stack that you 
shows hits. You know, it's like, again, you know, it's kind of one of the, you know, I, I think that they're going to do really good, but I'm not going to put my money on it because if they do do really good, I'm not going to make more money. So it's just one of those weird back and forth. But, uh, even just the other day when, when Sonny Gray, uh, was, was, was scratched and, and they brought in Jesse Chavez, I do some daily notes and I was asked by my editor, do I want to write a paragraph on now, you know, is now Toronto a team to target? because of the pitching switch, because I didn't write it up that way when Gray was in there. And I thought about it, and Jesse Chavez isn't bad. He doesn't give up home runs. And I can't every single night put Toronto in there. It's just the, the Peter and the Wolf sort of situation. So I opted not to. And I, I, I use air quotes again. You know, they only scored four runs. Uh, and actually it was Ryan Goins that hit a three-run homer. So fading the top hitters that night was the smart thing to do. So I do think there are times where you do need to pick and choose when you go after them. And they're going to, if they were this good, they'd be, they'd be hitting this good all year long. They're just in a nice little groove now. So we just ride them. If I'm, I'm not putting a pitcher in there against them. I don't care who it is. Uh, but I'm not necessarily using their bats every night. That becomes pretty contextual. So in the context, what would you be looking at? Specifically, I'm sure, who's pitching against them on a given night, but uh, what else might you look at in a situation where you're trying to decide how many of the Jays or any mini-stack potential that you are or aren't going to use? Well, in a DFS uh, uh, scenario, they're going to be very high-priced. So that's going to be one limit right there in that if I'm going to go with the Blue Jays, it's going to have to be with a pitcher that is low price because they need to be able to fit them in. And I don't want, if I'm going to use this, if I think the Blue Jays are going to do well, I don't want to just completely take a pitcher just because he's cheap. I'm going to need to hang my hat on something. So it's going to be a low price pitcher that I think has a, a chance to do well that night for whatever, whether it's high strikeouts or maybe he can get the win because his opponent pitcher isn't very good. So that would be the first thing is I need to pair him up with a cheap pitcher. And then it's, you still, you can't fit them all in. You, you just can't fit in Tulowitzki and, and Donaldson and, and, and the whole nine yards. So what I'll do is if there's a, a hitter on another team, if, if, uh, if there's a third baseman on another team that I think is in a really, really good spot, I'll elect him and use, not use Donaldson in my stack, hoping that, you know, everybody but Donaldson gets a hit and my third baseman goes nuts. And uh, and is the one that you know puts me over the top. Now, as a silly little example, on some sites, Miguel Sano and Trevor Plouffe are both third base only. And with Sano's hype and the fact he's doing so well, they play different positions. One of the ways to really differentiate is to use Trevor Plouffe. A, he's cheaper, and B, every if if one's in a good spot, they both are because they both are the same way. And no one will have Plouffe. So that's, that, that's you know, maybe there's a night where facing a left-hander in Minnesota and I'll use Plouffe and not use Donaldson and, you know, I'll use Batista and I'll use, uh, you know, Tulowitzki or something. Uh, so if I can find another player to replace one of those guys with, that would be a, t- a time to uh, possibly uh, go against the grain. The um, – now Toronto's interesting in that they are just so top heavy and that you know you need you need the home runs. I would think that one of the reasons I wouldn't have used him against Chavez is because he's 
a he doesn't give up all that many homers. I think he'd only given up three homers to righties all year long. So the other chance I wouldn't use or time I wouldn't use them is that the pitcher doesn't give up all that many homers because in DFS you want the home runs. You know, you know, rallies are nice, but you want home runs. So if a pitcher doesn't give up a lot of home runs like Chavez, then I'd be more apt to to fade them as well. Now, if it's against a Phil Hughes or uh, you know Colby Lewis, man, I'm going to fit as many in as I can. Yeah, especially Phil Hughes with the home run problem. Uh, in the forums at BaseballHQ.com, you mentioned earlier Sonny Gray uh, didn't make his start on uh, Wednesday afternoon against Toronto, said that there was uh, some issue with a minor injury. They were hoping to give him an extra day off. And in the forums at BaseballHQ.com, somebody asked if he was basically ducking the Jays because he wanted to have a better shot at winning the next game or maybe the team was ducking on his behalf. Uh, and you took umbrage. Yeah, I mean, and it turns out that I, it, it's one of those things that you, you, you can't you can't sometimes judge intent in a forum sort of. Uh, the original poster was making a little bit of a joke. And I just, it's one of my things where uh, I hear it all the time on 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 the radio and, 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 and reading about it where, where people will make fun of an athlete for not playing and, 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 and question his masculinity and all that stuff. And, and I'm the, you know, people know me, see me this, you know, I'm not exactly out there running a marathon every day, but yet I, I do take offense when people who are, you know, similar situations are, you know, keyboard courage. So I don't know. I just, plus Sonny Gray is a, he's a favorite player of mine and I've been doing a little bit of research on him and he had missed two starts since he started uh, when he got called up in 2013, one of which was early in 2014 when he had had a string of seven, eight, and nine inning games, and the team wanted to temper his innings, and there was a, a week or two off days, and they just kind of worked his way in to give him an extra day. And earlier this year, he had Salmonella. So this is a guy who's a bulldog. Not only that, he throws seven innings every start. So I just kind of like, I can't, you know, maybe it's because of my personal bias and I'm a Sonny Gray fan. I don't think Sonny Gray went up to the skipper and said, you know what, my back hurts in the back of his head. It's just that, you know, that, that, uh, that he didn't want, that he wanted to duck Toronto. And it turns out, like I said, the form misinterpreted what they said and it was all, you know, fine and dandy at the end. But is it possible that the team did that? You see, it's interesting because, you know, if, if he were closer to, arbitration and potentially being traded you know you can make a narrative of that man if he went out and shut toronto down that would increase his his stock on the other hand if he gets lit up it would decrease it so i have no idea if teams are are playing that game i i think some probably do and some probably don't i wouldn't i i'd want my guy to go out there and shut down the best team in the league uh especially because if he's going to be my my playoff anchor Next year, he's going to be facing the best team in the league, you know, and I want him out. I don't, I don't want to have in the back of his head that, you know, a year ago this time, we didn't, we didn't want you to face the best team in the league. And now we want to go out there and you want you to beat them. So I think it was just one of those, you know, kind of cute comments that was misinterpreted, but I got it. You know what? It probably does go on stuff like that, especially, I mean, we've heard of players sitting out for, for batting titles. He does have the ERA title. So maybe Oakland wanted to, you know, preserve the ERA title at this point. Uh, I hope not, but you never know. And it, yeah, I, I I wonder about this because it seems to me that teams are not 
averse to switching around their pitching staffs in order to either get their ace up against the guy they need to pitch against. The Toronto apparently moved things around a little bit to make sure David Price would start game one against the Yankees in this weekend series because it's a very important start for them. They want their best guy out there. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the A's might have looked at the situation and said, first of all, we think Chavez matches up better, more of a ground ball tilt a little bit. And second of all, we want Gray, as you said, to, to go out there and continue to have success. And if his back is even the tiniest bit bulky, why not? You know, it, it's it's kind of a false bravado to send a guy out there if he's got any kind of physical ailment, especially a back injury for a pitcher just because you don't want to face the criticism that you're ducking a team. It seems like uh, uh, the imposition of a narrative on Gray and on the A's that really is without foundation. Right now, especially, I mean, to sort of add to it, uh, all right, so he's not going to face Toronto and Rogers Center. Over the weekend, he's going to instead face Baltimore and Camden Yards. Now, right this present moment, Toronto's just smacking the ball left and right, but it's not as if, Baltimore doesn't have some power hitters and, and can do the same sort of thing. So it's not as if he's now going to be facing, you know, Seattle and Safeco or something like that. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, I, I do think, and the teams definitely rearrange their rotations for matchups in a positive way. Whether, whether they do it in this way or not, I, I don't know. Now, Gray is so far away from, from, from possibly being traded that I don't think that's a consideration at all. I just think they had a young kid who, whose back acted up the night before the game and uh, talked to the management. I, apparently they gave him treatment right afterwards and it didn't loosen up. And I think they just didn't want to take a chance with their, with their, one of the few prize possessions they had left. Uh, but it's, it, it is interesting managing, you know, bring it to fantasy a little bit We're, from now until the end of the year, especially when you play daily, these things are going to be happening all the, I mean, we went through with Clayton Kershaw uh, a week and a half ago with the, with the glute where these things are going to be happening all the time where they're going to be late minute scratches, players being, players being pulled in. And then even in seasonal, it's, if you pay attention, it's a way to get an edge when other people aren't paying attention that, you know, these, these sort of things, you know, hitters and pitchers scratches are going to occur left and right, especially when September occurs, when the rosters expand. But for now, even now, uh, any little edge you can get, these categories are so close. Look for that player that, that, that's, that's playing a little bit more, moved up in the batting order and the whatnot because of a, you know, a minor injury. You know, a, a Red Sox player gets hurt, you know, they're going to be very, very, you know, Pedroia. We not, you know, the guy you couldn't take him out of the lineup when the team's doing well. You know, we may not see him for a while, that, that sort of thing. And I should say, Sonny Gray is actually quite a ground ball pitcher. It was just an example I was using. Right. Before we leave Toronto, uh, Drew Hutchison has been a pleasant surprise for the team in one way. He's got 11 wins, uh, but it seems to be mostly because every time he pitches, they score 22 runs or something. Because other than his wins total, his his fantasy numbers are really quite bad. He's got an ERA over five. His whip is floating around 150. This, uh, again, seems to be a, a situation where the narrative can overtake the facts as they are presented to us. So how do you make Drew Hutchison for the balance of the season? And how likely would you be to ever start him? Uh, he's one of those high risk, high reward guys. And I don't want him in my lineup in a seasonal league and in a, in a DFS situation. He's one of those tournament guys that you, if he's on, he's like the little girl with the, the redheaded girl with the curl when he's on, you know, 12 strikeouts, seven innings when he's off, 
it's he just gets lit up. Unfortunately, this year he's been off more than on. He had a couple of games midseason where he, he looked like he may get a little bit more consistent, but it just never happened. Another guy that's similar is Nathan Ivaldi. And I was it one of I think it was it may have been Steve Gardner, one of our one of our colleagues talked about how he's got, you know, eleven wins but like seven or eight quality starts. And if you were in a quality start league, you know, you weren't quite as happy as you are if you had Nathan Ivaldi in a wins league. Uh, it was a, a cute little tweet that went out last night. Uh, you know, Hutchinson, Hutchinson doesn't, doesn't get the uh, quality starts either, but like you're saying, he's got the great run support and gets the wins. Now, if Toronto had a better bullpen, uh, I might be a little bit higher on Hutchinson, Hutchinson to, to be able to preserve some of those leads at end of five or six innings. But, you know, we're talking about how hot they are. If they can, if they can shore up that bullpen, it's going to be very interesting playoffs because they have a completely different dynamic than, say, the Royals and and some of these other teams that are potentially be in the playoffs. I think it could be a fun, uh, a fun playoff series watching these guys bash and see if uh, see if that can win the playoffs. But Drew Hutchison, uh, we use the pure quality start metric at baseballhq.com, which is a little more comprehensive than quality starts. And so far this year, he has a, just over a third starts that were dominant. We call it PQS 4 or 5 scores, but also a third that were disasters, PQS 0 or 1. It's the very portrait of a very inconsistent pitcher. I'm going to take issue with something you said about the Toronto bullpen. If you look at bullpens with every pitcher who's a non-starter throughout the year, then the then the Toronto bullpen does seem to be a weak link. But if you just look at the three guys that they that they trust in close games, they're as good as anybody in the league. I think I think the narrative that they need bullpen help is I think a little overstated, and it's it's getting better that rather than worse. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Now the the, the you're right about that on on paper, but to me the thing being. Once you get into the playoffs, you're going to need a deeper bullpen because you can't have the same three guys pitching three innings, you know, one inning apiece, all seven games or all four games. Uh, I think that's, that's the bigger difference is in some teams are able to get their fourth or fifth starter into the bullpen to give that extra arm. Um, now in, in, in other than David Price, they don't have the guy to go out there and give you eight or nine, so you don't have to use the bullpen. So you're I, you're absolutely right. the The front of the bullpen in, in a close game is fantastic. I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to be fantastic for an entire playoff series. Well, Kansas City basically used the same three guys all the way through the end of the World Series last year. Anytime they had a close game, so it's not without precedent. Now, I'm not saying that you know Sanchez and uh, and um, Osuna are exactly in the same caliber as Wade Davis and and Holland are, and going back before that, Kelvin Herrera. But they're not as much worse as a lot of people seem to think, is is what I'm getting at. Right. Well, as far as Kansas City goes, remember they they brought Brandon Finnegan in, and he used uh, he, he he took up some of those innings, and it wasn't just Herrera, Davis, and Holland. You added Brandon Finnegan to the mix, and San Francisco added Yusmero Petit to the mix. I think they need that that fourth, and maybe maybe it's Sanchez, maybe it's Estrada, maybe it maybe it is someone that's in house. Maybe it's maybe it's Marcus Stroman. Uh, you can speak more to that than I can. I've been reading stuff about him coming back. But if they can get that fourth arm, that maybe even go multiple innings. That to me, you know, if that that would make the difference. And wow, that would really that would be a real fun series to watch the the different styles of of the AL East. A, I'm sorry, the AL teams. 
uh, going at it in the playoffs. I think everybody uh, is – they're talking, you know, watching uh, – well, now I'm drawing a mental block. Who's, who's the, the, t- the team that, that Casey's been in the uh, – in sort of the the war with there, uh, the the battle with, um, and they think it's going to get all sorts of testy once they play them. Yeah, I'm. Oh, it is Toronto. I thought. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, there was a different. Well, Casey doesn't have friends. Well, it was a different team. Casey doesn't have friends anywhere. But the point being, uh, I, I I like the contrast in styles and would be very much looking forward to playoffs with Toronto in it. And uh, finally, on this note, uh, Mark Burley's last 15 starts have all been seven innings or higher except for two. And uh, R.A. Dickey, not that I'm suggesting either of these guys is a, is a problem solved for the Jays, but his last 10 starts have all been seven innings plus as well with one exception. So uh, the idea that they lack the pitching to go deep into games I think might be a little off. And again, it might be a narrative. I know I've heard a lot of that reading in the, in the sports media and so forth, but uh, seems to be one of those things that uh, we'll find out what happens. And Marcus Stroman's return is going to be a huge wild card in one direction or the other. I, I don't know how much they think they can rely on him. I don't think they're going to use him as a starting pitcher, but he would uh, c- certainly make an interesting addition to a playoff bullpen if he could come out and do what uh, Kansas City did last year. Right now, the the thing with and, and you're right about you know feeding into the narrative, but you know Burley and Dickey are doing a lot of these seven inning uh, stints against lesser teams. You know in the playoffs, are they going to be able to go the full seven innings against some of the better teams in the league? Which will be uh, which will which will which will be interesting. Now, yeah, Burley especially because uh, for DFS purposes, he's often overlooked because he doesn't strike batters out, but innings are points. So sometimes he's a sneaky way to uh, to get those extra extra points because no one ever uses them. If you're looking for a pitcher to use in in, for in a tournament that no one's going to be on, you know, Mark Burley's your man. And uh, haven't actually done it because I don't play a whole lot of tournaments, but I know people that have and have had some success using him. All right, Todd, I guess we'll see you tonight in the uh, Tout Wars Daily Friday Contest, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for ESPN.com, MastersBall.com. You'll see him at FantasyAlarm.com as well. When we come back, it's our regular Friday commentaries. We'll have the Minor League Minute, Playing Time, our frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and Master Notes all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Back of throws. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Milwaukee's trade acquisitions, Domingo Santana and Brett Phillips, is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Milwaukee Brewers have to be thrilled with the haul they received from the deal that sent Carlos Gomez and Mike Fires to the Houston Astros. The organization was in desperate need for impact bats, and they landed two in outfielders Domingo Santana and Brett Phillips. Santana was signed by the Phillies in 2009 as an international free agent and came over to the Astros in 2011 as part of the Hunter Pence deal. 
At 6'5", 225 pounds, Santana has a quick right-handed stroke and plus raw power, but he can be overly aggressive at the plate, and there's definitely some swing and miss to his game, especially when his swing gets long. He has good athleticism with average speed and a plus arm that should allow him to play right field in the majors. Santana has struggled in two brief stints in the majors, hitting just 179 and striking out an alarming 31 times in 56 at-bats, but he continues to rake the ball at AAA. On the year, Santana is hitting 325 with a 423 on base percentage and a very impressive 580 slugging percentage with 19 doubles and 17 home runs. He does draw a decent amount of walks, but has also struck out in over 33% of his career minor league at bats. Still, if Santana can figure out how to make more consistent contact, he has the bat speed and power to be a fantasy impact for years to come. Brett Phillips was a two-sport star in high school and looks to be a bit of a late bloomer. The sixth-round pick in 2012 scuffled in his first couple of professional seasons, showing good strike zone judgment, but not making a ton of contact. He had a nice breakout season last year in 2014, hitting 302 with 13 home runs and 18 stolen bases in the Midwest League, earning him a late-season promotion to the California League, where he continued to hit. Defensively, Phillips has plus speed, good range, and a plus arm that should enable him to stick in center field once he reaches the majors. At the plate, Phillips has become more aggressive as he hunts for pitches that he can drive, and prior to being traded, he was in the midst of his best season as a pro, hitting 314 with a 377 on base percentage and a 537 slugging percentage with 28 doubles, 16 home runs, and 15 stolen bases and 449 at bats. Phillips is at least a year behind Santana, but they immediately become the top two power prospects in the Brewers system and are definite keepers in NL only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything else you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage and our watch list report, a quick hit look at minor leaguers on the verge of call-up. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean changes in playing time. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at playing time decisions coming up fast in Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Pirates are again finding themselves in the middle of a playoff race down the stretch, and they'll have some interesting playing time decisions coming up. Brian Rudd of BaseballHQ.com recently covered the Pittsburgh situation in a Playing Time Tomorrow column on the site, focusing on a pair of rehabbing starters, Josh Harrison and Jordy Mercer. Given how the Pirates choose to deploy Harrison and Mercer will have fantasy implications the rest of the way. Both are close to beginning rehab assignments and could return to the club by late August. Harrison, who was disappointed this year after a breakout 2014 campaign, is a versatile defender and his return will likely have implications at third base, outfield, and possibly second. However, Pittsburgh just traded for Aramis Ramirez at the hot corner, but Ramirez is hitting just 239 this year with 11 homers, and that's likely Harrison's best avenue for regular playing time. The team is fine at second base with Neil Walker, and their outfield of Andrew McCutcheon, Starling Marte, and Gregory Polanco is in very good shape, especially with Polanco showing better plate discipline with strong speed and power skills to boot, particularly in the second half. Mercer, meanwhile, might have trouble finding a starting position when he gets back. Mercer has just a .242 batting average with two homers and three steals this year, production that is paled in comparison to current shortstop Young Ho Gong. 
Gong, who's in his first year over from South Korea, has blossomed in Mercer's absence in the everyday lineup. Gong's hitting 345 since July 1st with five homers. The skills, namely a 293 expected batting average and a 141 power index, say it'll be tough for Pittsburgh to put Mercer back in the starting lineup and Gong on the bench. So for now, expect Young Ho Gong to continue his hot streak at shortstop with Mercer on the bench. Aramis Ramirez is on somewhat shakier ground once Josh Harrison returns. Harrison will likely get close to a full-time opportunity given his positional flexibility, potentially taking regular time at third base and filling in as needed in the outfield and at second. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Chris Bassett, Colin Ray, and Travis Shaw. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. This week we'll profile three more frequent flyers, beginning with 26-year-old Oakland A's pitcher Chris Bassett, who fanned a career-high 10 batters in six and two-thirds innings versus the Houston Astros last Sunday. That effort followed up his previous career-high seven-strikeout performance against Baltimore on August 4th. It seems that Bassett is improving every time out despite a noticeable lack of run support from A's hitters. Bassett has an earned run average of 2.48 through 12 appearances this season, including 7 starts. However, his 11.2 dom and .66 ERA through 2 starts in August are what make him worthy of a flyer. Grab him now. Our next frequent flyer takes us to beautiful San Diego, where pitcher Colin Ray has just received the call to join the Padres with only six appearances at AAA under his belt. The six foot five right-hander has moved quickly through two levels of the minors in 2015, and he pitched a scoreless ninth inning in the Futures game this year in Cincinnati. Ray has posted a 1.95 ERA in 18 appearances at both AA and AAA this season. His DOM of 7.08 is slightly above BaseballHQ.com's recommendation of 7.0 or higher. His command ratio, or strikeouts-to-walk ratio, is 3.47, which also exceeds BaseballHQ.com's benchmark of 3.0 or higher. Plus, on average, he is only walking 2.5 batters per game. All these numbers point to the potential for elite skills. Not to mention, with the Padres trading away top pitching prospects Matt Whistler and Joe Ross, expectations are high for Colin Ray. Take a flyer on him, especially in Dynasty Leagues. Finally, our last frequent flyer takes us to Boston, where it appears the first baseman Travis Shaw may be the last man standing after the Red Sox traded Mike Napoli back to the Texas Rangers. Growing up, Travis Shaw's dad Jeff was a two-time All-Star pitcher and was teammates with current Red Sox manager John Farrell in Cleveland. But that's not the only reason why Travis Shaw may receive playing time. Shaw brings a disciplined eye to the plate with solid pitch recognition, according to the Baseball HQ 2015 Minor League Analyst. Indeed, through his first 36 Major League at-bats, Shaw is batting 306 with two home runs and then 850 OPS. Of course, that's a very small sample size. But Shaw did produce 56 home runs in the minors from 2012 to 2014 to lead all Red Sox farmhands, including belting 21 home runs last year. Keep in mind that Shaw holds a career 261 batting average through five levels of the minors, and the Red Sox will likely give Alan Craig another opportunity to start at some point. So it may not be wise to go all in on Travis Shaw for the final two months of the season. 
But if you want to up the ante in your league, consider adding Chris Bassett, Colin Ray, and Travis Shaw, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's our pitcher matchups report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 or higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers whose matchup ratings are below 0. Matchup ratings between 0 and 2, well, those are dealer's choice. You assess them based on your own risk tolerance and your league or game context. Now looking at Detroit right-hander Justin Verlander in Houston to face righty Colin McHugh, Patrick Corbin, left-hander of Arizona at Atlanta to face righty Mike Fultonevich, and two more weekend matchups. Here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Every team in Major League Baseball now has fewer than 50 games remaining in the regular season. There are only eight weeks left for you to put the pedal to the metal if you're going to make a move in your fantasy league. And many leagues have playoff schedules that cut into those weeks, as well as their own trade deadlines. So let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to look for some trade targets who won't be other teams' aces, but may help you to a fast finish. Justin Verlander seems to be on the rebound. He has four consecutive PQS DOM scores and five in his past six starts, plus a matchup rating of 206 for his Saturday start in hitter-friendly Houston. Over the past 31 days, Verlander has a BPV of 119, a DOM rate of 8.0, and a control rate of 1-1 for a command ratio of 7-3. That performance is validated by his first pitch strike rate of 84% and a swinging strike rate of 12%. He's made 10 starts since returning from a strained right biceps that landed him on the DL to begin the season. And the rust is finally wearing off. Verlander is both a worthwhile risk in his matchup and a trade target whose owners might not be aware of his improvements, Not to mention that the Tigers now have Miguel Cabrera back in their lineup. The Astros counter with Colin McHugh, who has a matchup rating of 138. He also has a PQS Dom score in five of his past six outings and six of his past eight. His average PQS score over his past 10 tries is 3.8. But his owners may recall his first 13 starts, during which his average PQS score was on the other end of the threes at 3.1. And speaking of 3-1, over the past 31 days, McHugh's ERA of 3-1-9 benefited from a strand rate of 78%. But you can point out his woeful whip of 152, knowing it was fed by a hit rate of 37%. Houston has the fourth best home record in the majors, but is a major league worst 3-7 over its past 10 games. That makes McHugh a long shot in this one, but another possible trade target for you. Patrick Corbin looks to be all the way back from Tommy John surgery after only seven starts with Arizona. He has a BPV of 133 on the year and 132 over the past 31 days, during which he has a dom rate of 9.6, and his velocity is at a career high. Corbin's control rate for the year is 2.0, and his XERA is nearly a run below his actual ERA. In their past 20 games, the D-backs have gone 13-7, fourth best in MLB. They are now a 500 team with the 7th best record in Major League Baseball versus teams under 500, which is what they will face on Saturday at Turner Field in Atlanta, though the Braves are over 500 at home. Corbin has a matchup rating of 092 and is a mount opponent, 
Mike Fultonevich has a matchup rating of 048. But Corbin is worth the risk, and Fultonevich is not. Fulty faltered in nine starts with the Braves from May 1 to June 14, was sent down, and returned in relief. He was then pressed back into starting after an injury to Manny Banuelos. In his past three home starts, Fultonevich has posted two PQS2s and one PQS1, allowing 13 earned runs in 17 innings pitched. Over the past 31 days, both his earned run average and his expected earned run average are over 5. His whip is over 1.5, and his BPV is 12. Fultonevich can fire away at nearly 95 miles per hour, but he has a swinging strike rate of just 8%, and he allows hard contact 31% of the time. At 23 years of age, he should be ready to shine just about when the Braves get their new stadium in two years. Erasmo Ramirez has a negative matchup rating for his Sunday start in Texas, but he's better than that. Since joining the Tampa Bay rotation May 14, his only two PQS disasters are a result of leaving one game early with a groin injury and another one out away from the requisite five innings. In his other 14 starts, he has 10 PQS dominant outings. Over the past 31 days, Ramirez has a BPV of 94 on a remarkable first pitch strike rate of 70% for a control rate of 1-2 and a whip of 1-0. Texas is tough against teams over 500 like the Rays, who have won 7 of their past 10 games, but the Rangers are under 500 at their hitter-friendly home, where they're send out Giovanni Gallardo with a matchup rating of 128. Gallardo was a popular ad in fantasy leagues a few weeks ago, but he has certainly stumbled since. His hot June was a complete mirage based on a hit rate of 22% and a strand rate of 93%. Those normalized in July, and he posted an ERA of 546 and a whip of 188. Gallardo's dom rate is in its third year of decline and is now at 5.7. In his past six starts, he has four PQS disasters. Don't just stay away from Gallardo. Run away. Returning to Atlanta on Sunday, Shelby Miller is at home for the Braves with a matchup rating of 177 to face the D-backs' Ruby De La Rosa. Miller is having a strong season and taking advantage of a little luck, mostly from a strand rate of 80%, keeping his ERA at 248, while his XERA is 377. Before his lone PQS disaster zero on June 2, Miller had six PQS dom starts in a row and eight in 10 tries. In 12 tries since then, He's had six PQS dominant starts and six PQS three scores. Not as impressive, but not too bad either. If Miller owners put him on a pedestal in April and May, the subsequent disappointment might make him a good trade target now. As for Sunday, I'd go with him unless I was already protecting leads in most of my pitching categories. We recommended Arizona's Ruby De La Rosa as a long shot in his July 25 start, and he came through with a PQS five. Since then, he's had three straight PQS threes, allowing nine earned runs in 17 innings pitched, earning him a matchup rating of only 089 as he squares off against Miller. On July 27, BaseballHQ.com's starting pitcher's buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickran saw that De La Rosa was showing signs of breaking out and predicted that he would emerge as one of the top starting pitchers in the National League. So that makes him a trade target for you right now. He comes into Sunday's start with a fine overall BPV of 90 and XERA of 376. But he's had some control issues the past 31 days from a low first pitch strike rate of 49%. His DOM has dropped to 4.8 and his control has risen to 3.4 for a 
for a command ratio of only 1-4. He's been unable to take advantage of a career-high ground ball rate of 57%, plus a hit rate of 24% and a strand rate of 83%. He's within 20 innings pitched of last season's career-high 162, and it would be wise to watch him from a distance on Sunday. This weekend, we looked at one pitcher with a matchup rating above two. So remember, these are all risk-reward plays that may also be trade targets. But go ahead and jump on the Justin Verlander bandwagon. Pull Patrick Corbin along with you, and let Erasmo Ramirez and Shelby Miller hop aboard too. But forego Mike Fultonevich, Giovanni Gallardo, and Ruby De La Rosa. If you're looking for a long shot, consider Colin McHugh. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at getting advice to run a fantasy team, here's Baseball HQ co-general manager Ray Murphy. A couple of weeks ago in this space, we ran through our annual list of lessons learned from big league general managers at the trade deadline. Another such lesson popped up this week. Even though we just went through this topic, I thought this particular lesson was too important to skip. The Red Sox, in the waning days of a very disappointing season, this week hired former Angels general manager Jerry Depoto as a temporary consultant. Essentially, Depoto was going to come in and offer an impartial eye to look at Boston's internal operations, their processes, and their biases. This is a great practice, when it seemingly doesn't happen all that often within baseball, but is more common in many other industries across the corporate landscape. There's a bit of an assumption we're making here, that the relationship is to be taken at face value. It's at least plausible that the outcome here is that Depoto makes some recommendations that somehow lead to Depoto himself having a prominent role in the Red Sox future front office. For a real-world corollary, think back to Dick Cheney leading the search for George Bush's vice presidential running mate and deciding that the best person for the job was Dick Cheney. But if we suspend our cynicism and believe for the moment that Depoto really is just bringing his objective eye as an outsider to look at Boston's processes, the benefits of that engagement seem pretty clear. And the benefits of undertaking a similar exercise for our fantasy teams seems equally clear. How would we go about doing this? The fact that Boston picked Depoto in particular for this tells us a lot about the criteria for making this a beneficial exercise. First, you want to pick an advisor who understands the league and environment. As a recent MLB general manager, DePoto's bona fides are more than sufficient. You want to pick an advisor who understands your approach and methodology. DePoto worked in the Red Sox organization with current GM Ben Charrington a decade or so ago. Third, you want to pick an advisor who you trust and has minimal or no conflict of interest. Currently unemployed, DePoto has no conflict with the Red Sox. There's the risk that he could grab some knowledge in this engagement and take it to a new general manager role later this winter, but that seems to be of minimal concern. It probably helps that there are no current GM openings in the AL East. So, how do we take these principles and apply them to our own circumstance? Here are a few ideas. First, you can get help from your other league. If you play in multiple leagues, asking a competitor from one league to offer some thoughts about your circumstances in another league is a great way to find that impartial perspective. Or you could get help from within your league. It can be a little more perilous to seek advice from within your league, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Maybe there's someone in your league with whom you both value your friendship over your rivalry. Or maybe there's a competitor who you respect, 
who happens to be on the opposite side of the contend versus rebuilding curve right now, thus minimizing the potential conflict. Third, you can see kelp online. Not to turn this into a commercial, but Baseball HQ has the best subscriber forums on the internet, full of helpful souls, both subscribers and HQ staff, who are frequently willing to sink their teeth into the intricacies of your league or share their experiences in similar circumstances. Regardless of which of these options you pick, September and October are a great time to undertake such an exercise. You and your advisor are still relatively engaged, and the events of the season and the thought processes behind various decisions are still relatively fresh in your mind. Actually, as long as we've broken the barrier on commercial plugs, here's one more idea. Another great place to get expert advice and counsel is at First Pitch Arizona. Our 21st annual symposium at the Arizona Fall League, running this November 5th through 8th, will be well-stocked with HQ staffers and other industry experts, all of whom are more than happy to sit down with you for an extended discussion of your league and your approach to it. Better yet, these discussions frequently occur in near-empty ballparks while watching top prospects in AFL games. Sign up before the end of this month to save 20% on the registration. Join us. You won't regret it. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 48 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest, our Talk with Todd commentator, Todd Zola. Always a great time to talk with Todd. And I want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Ryan Bloomfield and Alex Becky, pinch hitting for Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Ryan, of course, also our playing time commentator, and Alex was our frequent flyers commentator. Our minor league minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was Baseball HQ co-general manager Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our guest expert will be Glenn Colton of Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and a fine fantasy player in his own right, along with Todd Zola and the rest of our Friday cast of analysts and features. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>